You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. I teach middle school all through the week, which first off is fantastic. If anybody ever tells you that teaching middle schoolers is not awesome, they're liars and they just don't know enough middle schoolers because they're weird and they have no filters and they're funny and they think they're cool, but they're not, which is even funnier. It's a really great group of kids to be around all day. But also middle schoolers are like a weird micro picture of the rest of society. And they find themselves in a weird place in society, especially when it comes to trends. Because middle schoolers seem to be the notification that something is about to hit critical mass, right? Something has reached its absolute peak of popularity and in style and in fashion. When it hits middle schoolers, that's the top of that curve when it starts going down. Usually a trend probably starts this way. This is my theory anyway. So you start with your creators, the people who bring these things into life, and then it's grabbed a hold of by influencers and trendsetters, maybe moves on to celebrities, and then you get to young adults and college students, then it moves to high school students, and then at the very top, it hits middle school. And then you know that bad things are about to come for this trend in this fashion, because then it starts moving down to, I'll say, Facebook moms, and then down to dads and granddads who find it on clearance at TJ Maxx. That's usually the way that these things seem to flow. And it happens in a lot of different areas. And one of the weirdest places is in drinking containers. Because you can watch, and every couple years, a new kind of drinking container will just fill my classroom. And so a couple years ago, it was Yeti cups. All the little twerps had Yeti cups. Every stinking one of them had a $50 cup they were rolling into my class with. It was bizarre and strange, but they did. And now, it's Hydro Flasks. They've all got Hydro Flasks, every single one of them. And they're all the same thing, right? This is not a new invention. This is just a double-walled stainless steel drinking container, the same as the Yeti cups, the same as the Stanley cups before them, the same as thermoses way back in the day. It's the same basic principle, but something new is constantly coming into style. And since children aren't the one buying these, the marketing is pushed towards adults. And so it's all about the the merits of these cups, right? One cup will say, well, our cup can keep your drink cold for 24 hours and keep it hot for 12. And then the next company will come along and say, well, our drink cup can keep your drink warm for 26 hours and keep your drink cold for 48 hours, which is just an unnecessary amount of time for anything to be cold. But they're constantly pushing the merits of this really cold or really hot liquid when I'm sitting here with my Nalgene bottle with water in it from probably two days ago thinking, why is lukewarm water such a big deal? And then I say that out loud around people and they look at me as if I just said, why is it such a big deal to eat roadkill off the ground? Like lukewarm water is some disgusting, horrific thing. But then I started thinking, I guess there's something lukewarm I hate too, which is milk. Because I love milk. And you may be saying, Chris, children drink milk. Adults don't drink milk. Or you may be saying, why would you drink something that comes out of an animal? That's weird and gross. And to you, I say, it's delicious. And I love it. And I've loved it since I was a child. And also, underrated thing about milk, if you're really hot and you've been working really hard, you've been running and you're just really thirsty, milk is a great thirst quencher. It may seem counterproductive. It's just because you haven't tried it. It's delicious and wonderful and awesome. Quit shaking your heads no at me and just try it. It's good. But here's the thing about milk. Milk out of the refrigerator in a nice cold glass, oh man, it's so good. Like touches your soul good. But once milk has sat out for about four minutes, 
and becomes just shy of room temperature, it is vile and disgusting. Like drinking straight mucus, horrific tasting. And there's not much in between one and the other, and yet there's a difference. And so I guess I get it. There are some things that lukewarm just aren't very good. And so to be called lukewarm is certainly not a compliment. It's not something that you ever want to hear about yourself or something that you have. But that's exactly what Jesus calls a group of Christians living in a city known as Laodicea, which is a bummer because out of all the churches that we've been looking at here in the book of Revelation, they got the best name. I would love to live somewhere called Laodicea but they don't have the best letter. In fact, this is one of these letters where not only does Jesus come down on them on the things that they're doing wrong, but there's no affirmation of anything they're doing right at all. And so we're gonna be today in Revelation chapter three, and we're gonna read verse 14 through 22 as we finish the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation and get ready to move on next week into the rest of the content of this big, wonderful, mysterious book. So this is what Jesus says to the church at Laodicea and to the angel of the Lord in the church of Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see." Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and, he will, and I will eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant them to sit down with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, this is, a, this is a difficult one to be super thankful for because it just feels so hopeless. As this group of Christians in this city were just missing the point of the gospel, they were passionless. They were lukewarm to who you were and what you were doing. And so, God, I pray that you help us to really take heed to this warning, to be aware that if this could happen to this church, it could happen to our church as well. It could happen to us as individuals. God, help us to hold fast to the beauty and the awesomeness of the gospel, to keep our zeal and our passion constant and rooted in you. And so, Father, we ask that you do speak through your word, that you bless your word, that you would teach us through your word, and most importantly, God, that you would just fill us with excitement about who you are and what you've done, not only in our lives, but in the lives of people around the world and throughout history, the promises that we have in Christ and the work that you've set before us. So, God, teach us. 
And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At the beginning of our service, Zach read a passage of scripture out of the book of Matthew. And it comes out a section of scripture that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And these were probably teachings that Jesus spoke from city to city and town to town. And he comes before these people and he looks out over this group of people there to hear him teach. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And why would he say that? Why would Jesus consider being poor in spirit something that's blessed? I mean, in reality, shouldn't we want to have the same trajectory in our spiritual walk with Christ that we do in everything else? Because in all our ventures and everything we do, we want our lives to be on an upward trajectory, pointing towards reaching the pinnacle of whatever we're doing. If you're climbing a mountain, you want to get to the top. If you're running a race, you want to get to the end. If you're in school, then you want to get to the highest degree necessary to get the job that you want. And then once you have the job that you want, you want to put in as many hours and years and get to the age that you need to be so that you can master your craft and then be able to retire. And so in all of our minds, everything that we do, there's an end point. And we want to reach the place where we can arrive where we can achieve all that we want to achieve and finally sit back and relax. And so shouldn't we strive for that in our faith as well? Shouldn't we strive for that in our own spirituality? Wanting to reach a place of absolute confidence, wanting to reach a place of comfort saying, you know what? I've finally done all that I need to do. Because the church at Laodicea, they seem to have arrived. This is what they think about themselves in the first part of verse 17. Jesus says, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. They've nailed it. They're taken care of, not just financially, not just socially, not just from an economic perspective, but they feel like they've arrived spiritually. They say, we've made it. We need nothing. We need no one. And there's the problem, right? They've gotten to the point where they feel like they don't need anything or anybody. But as we look through the entirety of not just the New Testament, but the entirety of Scripture, Christianity, following after Christ, following after God and desiring a relationship with Him, this life is one that is and must always be a life of dependence. We even sang about that. We read passages of scripture that talk about this idea that we have nothing to boast in but Christ alone because scripture teaches us that salvation, it's not based on what I've done. It's not based on the amount of works that I could do to somehow earn God's attention or earn God's favor. The salvation is given by grace alone and a dependency on the work that Jesus did for us through his death and resurrection. But even beyond that, Scripture teaches that we are being saved, that each and every day we rely on those mercies of God that are new every single morning. Every single day, we don't wake up being able to now have what we need to save ourselves, but every single day, God is saving us by the grace and mercy of Jesus and sustaining that salvation and holding it in his hands until the day that Paul says, Jesus will complete that salvation on the day when he makes all things right and all things new. And so the Christian life is a life of constant dependence. But again, we tend to look at it the way that Laodicea looks at it. We look at the Christian life as a series of boxes to check. 
a series of milestones that we need to hit, that we move past this thing and then maybe we read scripture every day and we go to church all the time and then we're in leadership in church and we move up and move up and check boxes and check boxes. And then as a church, it's the same thing. We grow, we check boxes, we baptize, we check boxes, we build buildings and add more people and check boxes until finally we get to a point where we say, okay, it looks like we've done everything that we need to do and we can sit back because we are prosperous and we don't need anyone or we don't need anything. But think about the life of Paul. Before coming to Christ, Paul had it all figured out. The apostle Paul was a Pharisee and a religious leader and considered himself spiritually rich. He had checked off all the boxes that he needed to check off. And when people saw Paul, they saw a man who was spiritually empowered and spiritually wealthy. And then he met Jesus. And he said, oh, maybe I don't have everything that I need after all. Because all of a sudden he saw what true spiritual richness and glory looked like. And the more that Paul grew in his relationship with Christ, the more that Paul knew Jesus, the more Paul was aware of his own spiritual poverty, saying things like everything that I once had dear, I count it as garbage comparing to knowing Christ Jesus because I have nothing and Christ has everything, but Christ is all that I need. But Laodicea, they had drifted away from Christ. They had drifted away from their knowledge of their need for dependence on Jesus, and they had moved into something that looked a whole lot more like comfortable self-righteousness. You see, they didn't need Christ. They just needed the appearance of Christianity. And here's the problem with that for Laodicea and for us right here and right now. The appearance of Christianity, the appearance of being a church or even a good church doesn't inspire much passion. And so this church at Laodicea, they felt like they had it all together, but really they were missing the core of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And it's sad. But even more than being sad, it's dangerous. And as we look at this in the, the way that Jesus responds to them, he says, I know your works and they're neither hot nor cold. And I would rather you be hot or cold. Jesus, I would rather you be really passionate or just walk away from this completely because where you are in this lukewarm, mediocre, complacent place is completely contrary to the gospel as a whole. And he says, I, would just, I just want to spit you out of my mouth. You say that you need nothing. You say that you have everything that you need. But here's the reality. He says, you're not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And in the church at Laodicea, we get a, a, a spiritual Dorian Gray here, where on the outside, they look like they've got it all put together. They look like the ideal of what it means to follow after Jesus. They're able to sit back and say, look at all that we've done. And so the outside looks good, but upstairs in the attic, they've got a portrait that's filled with death and decay and brokenness that shows who they really are. But they thought they could mask it. They thought they could cover it up. But then Jesus comes in and he just pulls off the mask and he says, no, this is who you really are. Comfort 
and complacency when it comes to spiritual things and especially self-righteousness, this feeling that we can somehow accomplish what we're supposed to accomplish without Christ. These are the ingredients for lukewarm, need-nothing, empty Christianity that not only inspires no passion at all in the life of someone who calls themselves a believer, but it has the power to take churches that look all good on the outside and cause them to fall apart internally. And so we need to look at this picture of the church in Laodicea and have a little bit of spiritual restlessness. Start to really line ourselves up with Christ and say, you know what? Maybe I don't have it going on because I've been in church for a long time or maybe I've been doing the right things or I don't live my life like this person lives their life or I don't say the things this person says. I don't go the place this person goes. And we start comparing ourselves to other people when in reality we're supposed to look to Christ and say, compared to that, I have absolutely nothing and to start putting our trust fully in Jesus, to work out our salvation, as Paul says, with fear and trembling and daily recognizing our need for Christ. Waking up in the morning saying, you know what? I wanna live in a way that honors you. I wanna glorify you, but I can't do it without you. And asking God to move in and through us by the power of the spirit to accomplish what he can do, not what we can do. But the church at Laodicea, they've lost that. And it feels really hopeless. But this next section, again, throws us back to the Old Testament. And if you were here as we were preaching through Genesis 1 through 11 a few months ago, at the very beginning there, in Genesis chapter 3, we see this story of sin entering God's garden. And the people, after they sin, they're ashamed of their sin and they try to cover themselves up. They try to hide themselves from God and they do that with fig leaves. They do that with a really inefficient means. They do that with self-righteousness. And then God steps in and he sees them and he takes away those fig leaves and he wraps them up in proper clothing. For Laodicea, All these things are true about them, and they may know it, they may not. Jesus says, you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind, and naked, and so maybe some of them are aware, but it seems like they're going through life not paying attention to the fact that these things are true about them, and yet they're still trying to hide this with their own successes, with their own riches, with their own spiritual comfort. But their solution is lacking because Jesus sees through the mask into who they really are. And so he provides them a little spiritual economic counseling. And he comes in in verse 18, he says, that's who you are. And so what I think you should do, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He says, you think you've got it. You think you're rich. You think you've covered your shame and your brokenness. You think you've done all these things, but the reality is is that you haven't. And self-righteousness, the self-righteousness that Laodicea is trying to hide behind is really just a spiritual illusion. I remember when I was a kid, I watched David Copperfield. He was this illusionist magician guy. I watched him make the Statue of Liberty disappear. And it was insane 
because this was a long time ago, before you had all your CGI that makes you feel like you can't trust TV, you could pretty much assume that if you saw it on TV, it kind of had to be real and true. And so I watched this guy make the Statue of Liberty disappear, and I was like, <gasps> it was amazing and blew me away. And then like a year later, this other show came out where it was this guy that wore a mask, and he starts exposing how all of these magicians do their tricks. And it was super intriguing, and I couldn't look away, but it was also just ripping my heart out of my chest because I was like, oh my gosh, they're all frauds. And so he showed how David Copperfield did that thing and turns out he wasn't some sort of wizard. He just had some mirrors and some things that he could push on the camera so that the Statue of Liberty went away. There was no power there. It was just an illusion. And in the same way, that's what's happening in Laodicea. They're putting on this good front so that you think that they're spiritually okay, but the reality is this self-righteousness has absolutely no real power. And so Jesus says, you need to take this illusion, you need to take this sham, and you need to exchange it for something that has real power. You think you're rich because you have money in the bank, but I'm calling you to come and receive gold from me that's been refined by fire. Not the gold that can pass away, but riches that are eternal. Come to me and find what it means to really be spiritually taken care of in Christ. He says, take these clothes that, that don't cover you up, that don't hide anything away and exchange them for my clothes of righteousness that will cover your shame and your guilt and your fear. And why does he do this? Because he loves them. And he says that in verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Jesus, I'm not coming at you because I don't love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't care what you're doing, but I love you. And so I don't want to see you waste this good gift that's been given to you. I don't want to see you walk through this life in complacency when there's something so much more in the life that follows after me. And so he says, I'm going to discipline you and teach you and reprove you so that you can know what real genuine life is. But so often we can see discipline in our lives as, as punishment, that it's punitive. But when God disciplines his children, it's because he loves us and wants us to be who he's called us to be. He says there that he wants to cover their shame. He wants to make them spiritually rich. He wants to give them eyes so that they can see the beauty of a life following after Christ because that's how much he loves them and he doesn't want to see them waste their lives. And he wants to do that for each of us as well. And the reality is, even in a room of this size, that there are people in all different walks of life. There are people in all different places in their faith and in their relationship with God. And sometimes we find ourselves in these seasons of rebellion, running away from God, not wanting to have anything to do with God. And sometimes it's just seasons of apathy where we don't care. And we don't want to really pursue Christ the way that we should, but we're not quite bold enough to walk away completely. And in those times, because God loves us and because God cares for us, he's going to do what he needs to do to bring us back to who we're supposed to be. And so we need to learn to see those seasons as God disciplines us and shapes our lives in whatever way he chooses to do that as a gift from a loving God working for our good. And in those times, take on this calling that Jesus gives to the church at Laodicea to be zealous and repent. 
He's saying, I'm showing you what you could have. I'm showing you who you could be. And so turn away from this garbage, turn away from this falseness, turn away from this complacency and self-righteousness and come over here where it's real. Come over here where there's genuine power and the beauty of the gospel. Turn away from that and be passionate about who I am and where I'm calling you to be. And that should be our response as well. As we take these spiritual inventories of our lives and find the places where we're complacent, find the places where we've stopped caring, find the places where we may be Christians in name only or appearance only, and find those places and drive them out and turn away from those and be zealous and passionate about the things that lead us to a true, genuine relationship with the Jesus who hung the stars in the sky. And so he gives them this picture of hope. And he's calling them out of complacency and into a life of passion and gospel-driven love. And then we get the promise, just like we see in every passage of scripture that we've gone through so far in these letters to the churches. In verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on the throne. And this is one of those verses that we just shrink down to something small. And if we quote it, maybe we say, well, this is Jesus knocking, wanting to come into your heart, whatever that means. Or maybe this is Jesus coming knocking with some opportunities for you. But this is a lot more than opportunity knocking. This is even beyond just a simple forgiveness of sin knocking on the doors of our hearts. Jesus says, I am standing at the door knocking. And if you open the door to me, I'm going to come in and I'm going to eat with you. That seems like a weird thing to say. Because we eat in a fast food world. But in the ancient world, in the first century, when you ate with someone, you came into their house, you became part of the family, you would recline on the floor with them. It was a very intimate affair. And so Jesus says, I'm standing here knocking, not so that you can follow some process, not so that you can just do some things or follow some commandments, but I'm knocking on the door of your church because I want to come in and I want to be there with you and I want to eat with you. I want to have this intimate, deep and passionate relationship with you. He says, why are you wasting your life in lukewarm apathy when I'm inviting you to come and experience the fullness of the kingdom of God and a deep and personal relationship with me? He says, if you conquer this nonsense, if you conquer the self-righteousness and this complacency, then not only am I going to sit with you, but I am going to seat you up on a throne. And look at the, the reversal there from what we see up at the top in verse 14 and 15. When Jesus says, you are lukewarm and apathetic and I wish I could just get you out of my presence, I wish I could spit you out of my mouth, to now he's saying, if you follow after me the way that you should, then I'm gonna exalt you and seat you on a throne and you're gonna reign with me forever. This feels like a pretty good trade. And he's offering it to this church at Laodicea saying, you can get rid of all of this fakeness. And you can exchange it for the real thing, and I promise you, it's better. Through all of these letters, and through the first couple chapters of Revelation, we've seen a picture of Christ that should be jarring. 
as John tries his best to describe who Jesus is, not simply as the suffering servant of the gospels who died and rose from the dead, but as the king of kings and reigning Lord of lords, the one who I love how he introduces himself to the church at Laodicea, the one who is the amen, the one who is the final word, the Jesus who is the same today, yesterday, and forever, the Jesus who sees through all the garbage, the Jesus that has the sword that's the word of truth that cuts through all the things in our lives and gets down to the heart of the matter, the Jesus who is so big and so awesome and so holy and so majestic that when one of his own apostles looks him in the face, he falls on the ground as though he's dead. And that's the Jesus that wants to call us into a relationship with himself. That's the Jesus who made the decision to take all of that, to take all of his glory, all of his authority, all of his majesty and set it aside. And as Paul said, became nothing for us. Walking around in flesh and blood, becoming one of us for us and then suffering for us, being mocked and hurt both emotionally, spiritually, and physically for us, dying for us, but then conquering the grave for us and giving us not only the hope of having our guilt covered no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, he's a God who can take away our shame and our sin, but not only that, but he wants to be with us forever. And the reason why he did all of that the reason why he took time out of eternity to come in and do those things for us is because he loves us and is passionate about us. And that's the kind of message and that's the kind of truth that we cannot be apathetic about. The Christian life, for lack of a better term, is about so much more than just passive obedience or keeping up appearances. It's about having a dynamic, intimate relationship with the Jesus whom all things were created through and for and by. The Jesus who loved us with an unflinching, unconditional love. The Jesus who is so big and so awesome that we couldn't dare stand in his presence on our own, but calls us into himself and wants us there for all of eternity. That's a reason for Christians to be passionate. And yet so often we just come into churches and we look like nothing's changed. So often we go through our lives without any sort of joy. We go through our lives without any sort of excitement about the gospel, allowing everything in the world to either grab our attention or beat us down. And so we've got to treat the Christian life like an old steam engine where you just take that coal and throw it in the fire. And if you stop doing that, eventually the train would run out of steam and come to a stop. And that's what happened in Laodicea. They'd stop pouring in the truth of the gospel. They'd stop reflecting on the beauty of Christ. And we have a danger for that as well because we can start taking the beauty of the gospel and exchanging it for some good rules to live by or some self-help advice on how we can make it through the life and be as healthy and happy as possible when the gospel is so much deeper and more beautiful than that. And so we need to constantly come back to scripture then pour ourselves into the truth of who Christ is and what he's done for that and throw it in the furnace of our lives and keep that passion running. But we not only do that individually, but we have to do that as a church, which means we need to do that together, stirring one another up, like iron sharpening iron, constantly being joyful and passionate about the gospel with one another and even sometimes for one another. 
Because again, we're all constantly moving through this salvation and sometimes we're up and sometimes we're down and sometimes we're right in the middle. And so on those times when you are passionate about Christ and passionate about the gospel, then share that with other people. Talk about it. Celebrate the goodness of Christ with others, especially those who may be going through a season of apathy or maybe going through a season of disappointment with God or frustration with God or forgetting about the truth of the gospel. Share that passion with other people and be passionate for others. And then when you find yourself in those seasons, those seasons where you're apathetic, those seasons where you're disappointed or frustrated or falling away, and I promise you they will come. When you find yourself in those situations, don't pull away from other believers, but cling on to other believers. Siphon off the passion of other believers like some sort of spiritual vampires, just getting in there and taking what we can from people and letting them share that passion and that love with us and to rekindle that fire in our own lives until it's true for us as well. See, we need to fight as a church with everything inside of us to not let that passion die. Because there are going to be boxes that we can check. We just, we're praying. We want to continue to grow. We want to see people baptized. It's awesome that, that some Sundays now we're getting to where this room's a little, a little cramped, a little hot. <laughs> a lot hot. Sometimes this room is a lot hot, but that's good because that means that we're growing. And that's an awesome and encouraging and awesome. That's said awesome twice because it's really awesome. It's a really good thing that happens, but we can't start saying, okay, well, when we get to this point, then we can check off this box. Or when we get to this point, then we can check off this box. And maybe once we have this kind of building, we planted this many churches and this many missionaries and this and this and this, then finally we can get to the point where we say, okay, now we're a pretty good church. We can just sit back and rest. And we've kind of accomplished what we need to accomplish and we don't really need anything anymore. We need to constantly fight with everything in us to never be accused of being lukewarm or resting on our merits or our laurels and never be casual about the eternity-shaping, universe-shaking power of the gospel and the Jesus who gave it to us. Every aspect of our lives, individually and as a church, needs to be passionate about Christ. The way that we speak about Christ should be passionate. The way that we move, the way that we live, the way that we serve, the way that we love, all of those things should be marked by a passion and a zeal for the gospel and a passion and a zeal for Christ. And even the songs that we sing and the way that we worship should be marked with that zeal and that passion. And that's exactly what we're gonna look at next week. As we get into Revelation chapter four and we get a window in to the throne room of God. And we see what worship in heaven looks like. And we're gonna evaluate how good of a job that we do reflecting that here and now, because we have that opportunity. We have the gospel, we have Jesus, and we have the ability to have that kind of passion. And so we'll look at that next week as we come back together. Father God, It's just so easy to be so complacent. And maybe especially because of where we live, because we're in a city where there's a church on every corner, where we have systems and programs in place, entire aisles of books and bookstores that can teach you how to be a healthy church, a productive church, a church that doesn't need anything. 
But God, we do need something. And if we ever get to the point where we don't need Christ, then we don't need to be a church. And so, Father, first and foremost, I pray that you just humble us individually and as a church. That we would recognize the gospel is primary in our lives, that we were saved because of a dependence in Jesus. We are being saved because of our dependence in Christ. And one day we will be completed all because of Jesus. So God, help us hold fast to that truth. But God, as we do, help us to remember that you are working in and through us to accomplish things far beyond our own merits or skills or power. That it's the Jesus who hung the stars in the sky that works through his churches to accomplish his good us passionately so that we can not only love him passionately, but love one another passionately and love the people beyond these walls with a Christ-like affection and intimacy. God, I pray that you would never look at Redeeming Grace Community Church and just see us comfortable in self-righteousness, lukewarm towards the gospel. But God, the more that we get to know you individually and corporately, the more we would recognize our own spiritual poverty, yes, but also how amazing the gospel is that even though we had nothing to offer you, you gave everything for us. And that that truth would just inspire with each passing day more love, more passion, more excitement, and more joy. As you stand at the door and knock, God, we just ask you to come in and be with us, work in and through us, shape us, discipline us where necessary, encourage us and strengthen us where we need it, and lead us each and every day to be more like you, to loving you more, and to loving our neighbors more. Until the day when we do arrive, not because of our own works, but because you come, as we see in the book of Revelation, to make everything right and everything new. And we're able to lay down these works and take up your righteousness. So God, don't let us lose that fire. Don't let us lose that passion. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus.